Okay. Um, turn to First John. First John five. Today, and let's open in prayer. Our Father, you are light and life and love. In you, there is no darkness at all. We are born in darkness, but we, by your mercy, have seen a great light. The light who is the light, life of men. And we have beheld him by the testimony of the spirit through the witness of his messengers. And therefore we know that we have eternal life in him and we can walk in the light. We rejoice this morning yet again over this and over your grace of initiating love. May that love overflow abundantly in love toward you and toward the brothers who walk together with us. We pray this in the name and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read John, 1 John 5:11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. This is God's word. that you may know that you have eternal life. That's how verse 13 concluded. That you may know that you have eternal life. I wonder if there's any piece of knowledge that we could possibly possess that could be higher or better than this. That you may know that you have eternal life. Um, Interesting, during the 15 months or so, Roughly 7,000 conversations, maybe 60 letters to inmates that I, when I worked for, for Ligonier, far and away the most obvious lesson that I learned is that people and Christians, for very many of them, this particular knowledge eludes them. That you may know that you have eternal life. It's a struggle for many Christians, people who have been in the faith for a long time, and of course for for new believers as well. What I found was that most people, average Christians, long to know, how can I live quorum Deo, before the face of God? How can I live in peace with God, in joy, in the presence of God, both here and in eternity? And people want to know, what really is it that makes a Christian a Christian, and am I really one? The book of First John, in many respects, answers these most basic and fundamental questions for the Christian life, while simultaneously also being an un- un- unplumbable depth and well of truths. We're going to be launching into our series in First John here. About a decade ago, I completed a project in seminary, which is crazy that it was that long ago, uh, where we spent about five months translating the book, writing a commentary on it and teaching it. 
Um, and Kelly asked me the other day how I was feeling about this series, having done so much work in the book in the past. And my answer really is twofold. Um, first, because I have spent a lot of time studying this book in the, in the past, this book has had time to work its way into my soul and become really a part of the fiber of my being and my theology and, and, and my understanding of the Christian life. And that is to say that I really love the book of 1 John. And I have been excited and waiting to, to go through this book with you. The second part of my response is that any quote-unquote in-depth project, be it a, an academic project or a sermon series, um, it, it just highlights the unplumbable nature of God's Word. That no matter how deep I go into God's Word, I always feel like a speedboat skipping across the tops of the waves in a vast ocean. Particularly now, after ten years, I know that I will see things that I never saw then. And connect, I'll make connections that I could not have made then. And for that reason, I'm also excited at the prospect of, of new discoveries. First oh. John is, is a familiar book to most of us. Um, and Sproul, he liked to offer a warning before sermons on familiar passages. He would often admit the reality of the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. If you've listened to him, you've heard him say that. But likewise, he would warn against this attitude of contempt, contempt toward the familiar. Because familiarity and repetition are also the things that ingrain the truth of God's word into our souls. The classics are classics for a reason. There's a reason that the New Testament references Isaiah and Psalm 110 more than perhaps Nahum. Although Nahum is worth studying as well. So I'd urge you that you come along with me on this series with anticipation of fresh, fresh truths, even though it is familiar. It's so all of that touching on the why uh, we're going to go through First John question. And of course, after this, I've mentioned at least to some of you that we're going to go to uh, Job next. So I expect to spend about 14 to 16 weeks here. Uh, my plan for today is to introduce just some of the background of the book of 1 John and the themes that will help us to understand the book better. And then I just want to read through uh, the book with you. So just a little bit of background and context. Uh, the author is, is John, the apostle, and he doesn't name himself in any of his books except for Revelation. Um, in Second John, he calls himself simply the elder. Conservative scholarship is unanimous that the author of First and Second, Third John, the Gospel of John and Revelation are all the Apostle John and not a different John or a different John the Elder, but it is the Apostle. Um, the style and themes are just so similar between all of these books. And also uh, the ancient fathers are, are, are pretty unanimous in attributing these books to the Apostle John. Church historian uh, Eusebius cites Ignatius and Clement placing John back in Asia. Um, which would be modern-day Turkey, or around Ephesus, after his exile on Patmos. So he was exiled to Patmos, and then afterward, um, after the death of, of Domitian, the, the emperor who persecuted Christians. Um, so this would put it about 
98 AD, late in the first century. And this would make John at this point a very old man. Um, Robert Yarborough has a helpful comment here. He said, given this information, if we care to assign John's letters to a particular historical milieu at all, it seems warranted to think of them as reflecting conditions in the regions, region of Ephesus in the closing decades of the first century. <clears throat> That's a bit about the author and, and, and date. Um, the occasion here, John, First John, lacks uh, the greetings that are typical and salutations that are typical of an, an epistle. And so um, some have suggested that maybe it's more of a sermon or, or a, a, a tract or a, a, a treatise, a short treatise. But it also has the character of a letter in that John is clearly very familiar with his audience. Six times in the letter he calls them beloved. And throughout the letter he calls them little children or my little children. And wherever it is they are, it's clear that there are people in the, in the community claiming to be Christians that are endangering John's little children. These people are teachers. They claim to know how to obtain eternal life. And they are professing Christians. But they are at fundamental odds with the apostolic gospel. Their message is different from John's gospel. Some commentators call these people, these unknown people, the separatists. Because in, in chapter 2, verse 19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Um, John himself simply calls them antichrists. Now, despite really many gallons of ink being spilt over exactly what is this heresy afflicting the church, uh, scholars are pretty much agreed. We don't know. We don't know exactly. We can't pin it down exactly. However, I think it's not that that ink was spilled in vain because we can get in the ballpark. And that will help us to better interpret the book. Um, so there's a lot of evidence in, in the book itself in First John that this heresy lived in the same neighborhood as or was the progenitor of what we know today as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism didn't come into its own really until the second century. So this is some kind of early form of this. Um, but we, if we're right about the late date of, of the book, John is just really a generation shy of the Gnostic and, and related heresies that Ignatius and Irenaeus battled in the second century. And if you ever want some weird reading, um, take up the, the second century Gnostic Gospels, you know, the, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary, Mary weird stuff. This problem has often been identified as, as incipient Gnosticism or just an early form of Gnosticism. <coughs> the heretical teachings here are, are really the outworking of Plato's thought and Platonic uh, dualism, which to, to over, oversimplify a bit means that spiritual is good, matter is evil. 
spiritual is good, matter is evil, and therefore human beings are two parts, body and soul, and the goal is, is, is that the soul is in, imprisoned in this material state and it needs to escape. So Gnosticism then, coming from the Greek word gnosis, simply meaning knowledge, advocates seeking a higher knowledge by which you escape the material. Something like this may be represented in Second John, verse 9, where John says, anyone who runs ahead, so here this is a, a higher plane of knowledge going beyond the gospel. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So just a few reasons from the book why we think that it's some sort of early form of Gnostic thought that that John is dealing with here is that, first of all, there's a strong emphasis on the human nature of Jesus. Understand, if you're a Gnostic or a proto-Gnostic, you believe matter is evil. Um, God, who is spirit, taking on human flesh in incarnation is very offensive. We can't have... That, And so there are various solutions to the problem for Gnostics, but they were all fundamentally in denial of incarnation. So John is very emphatic that Jesus came in the flesh. Just a couple examples. First John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. And then one more example, the very introduction of the book um, in chapter 1, 1 and 2, that which was from the beginning. So he's talking about Jesus here, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. So he's, he's saying is Jesus was not some sort of phantom body. Uh, Jesus was real. We saw him. We, we touched him. We spent time with him. He was in the flesh. Another reason to think it was some form of, of early Gnosticism is John's emphasis on righteousness Um, Sin and righteousness and personal holiness. Frank Thielman says, um, since an anointing sacrifice is a remedy for transgression against God's law, it has no place in a system where the problem is formulated differently in terms of one's essential nature. So Gnostic or dualistic thought is not as concerned with what happens in the body and, and therefore... What happens in the body is uh, of little consequence. Sin is of little consequence. Sin gets redefined because the problem is escaping the body rather than dealing with sin and unrighteousness before God's law. Um, One example from the Gospel of Mary says, There is no sin, but it is you who make sin when you do the things that are like the nature of adultery, which is called sin. That is why the good capital G, came into your midst in the essence of every nature in order to restore it to its root. 
You can see there again, the problem is different. It's not sin, it's, it's returning to a spiritual state. And really, this whole idea of, of um, the problem being formulated differently in terms of one essential nature and it not, the problem not being sin is really all too familiar in our society, isn't it? Now for John, the problem is sin. And sin, he plainly defines sin in chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a breach of God's law. And the solution he offers is clearly identified as the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross as a propitiation for that sin. Um, 1 John 4, 9, and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for us. The third reason why we think it's uh, the, the problem with something related to Gnosticism is just an emphasis on knowledge itself throughout the book. And when we read through it, pay attention for that word, know, or, or the related words. There's an emphasis on knowledge. And John is essentially saying if you want to know something, if you want to attain to a higher plane of spiritual knowledge and understanding, how about the divine logos revealed from heaven in the flesh? That's higher knowledge. So this mysterious proto-Gnostic heresy, it would seem, incited John to write this letter. But we should point out that the book is not first and foremost written against something, but it is an advocation for the once for all delivered gospel and the apostolic faith. Um, Yarborough, again, he's quoting someone else, but this is helpful. I think the remarkable thing about First John is that it does not consist of a bitter polemic against those who departed or sustained refutation of their claims. The focus is not on the outsiders, but on those who remain. And Yarborough goes on to say, um, there are resources for offsetting these ills because they are precisely the things Christ came to challenge and vanquish and then to give his followers victory over as they respond to him in faith. Many become disillusioned at wrongdoing in the church. First, John reminds readers that the first problem to confront is the person in the mirror. And so um, the, the, the thing, the focus of John is, of course, he deals with these heretics, but he's primarily focused on encouraging the saints in the apostolic gospel. And before we go on to, to read First um, John, I just want to lay out a few of the positive themes then. As uh, that you can uh, notice as we read through the book. So um, it's nice when the writer tells us why he wrote. And there's no shortage of this in First John. John tells us in seven places why he wrote. Um, first of all, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And then again, in verse four, we have another reason. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. And then in chapter two, verse one, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then in chapter 2 again, verses 12 through 14, this bit of, of an obscure uh, a section, but just notice that the verbs are all present tense or past tense. You are either have it or you gained it before. Um, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Then another reason, again in chapter 2, verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And then again, in chapter 2, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And the final one in chapter 5, which we already read, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Just a, a word on a few themes that we see throughout First John. Uh, again, Frank Thielman is helpful here. He says, although First John has no obviously traceable argument, the elder nevertheless returns again and again to five themes. And what he means here is, is John is not like Paul. He's not a linear uh, rhetorical arguer. And in fact, I find First John, and this is very frustrating at times, but he thinks like this. It's more of, a, I think, a, a, an Eastern mindset about argumentation than a Western one. Um, but he uh, lists these five themes. I think they're helpful. Uh, first, the authority and truthfulness of the early traditions. And namely, he's talking there about the apostolic traditions, the apostolic witness to Jesus. Second, the witness of those traditions to Jesus' humanity. Third, their witness to the relationship between Christ and sin. Fourth, their witness to the significance of Jesus' death. And fifth, their witness to love as proof of claims to have a relationship with God. So again, authority and truthfulness of the early traditions, witness of traditions to Jesus' humanity, their witness to the relationship between the Christian and sin, their witness to the significance of Jesus' death, and their witness to love as proof of claims to have a relationship with God. Then finally, I think it's just helpful to pay attention to John, in all of his writings, he loves contrasts. And so it's helpful to note some of the contrasts that he uses throughout the book. Um, He contrasts light and darkness. or The new commandment versus the old commandment. Um, Life and death, love and hatred, love of the Father and love of the world, abiding and departing, the children of God and the children of the devil, truth and lies, confession and denial, and Christ and the Antichrist. I'm sure there are more, but those are a few of them. 
And that last one in particular, Christ and the Antichrist, I, I believe is at the heart of this whole thing. Christ and his atoning work on the, are, are, are the access around which the rest of these themes spin. Do you have eternal life? That's the question. And your answer to that question will be the same as your answer to the question, do you have Jesus as offered to you in the apostolic gospel? That's why I began with, with, with the final um, purpose statement in chapter 5. Um, it is the one I believe sums up the book best. Do you have the Son? So again, just to read it one more time. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So this is at the root of everything else. Do you believe in Jesus? It's on one level that simple. As Christians, we never move past that question, do you believe in Jesus? And First John is proof of that. Here's a Christian community late in the first century, afflicted by false teaching, fairly complex philosophical false teaching, and yet John is able, on the one hand, to outthink and outreason these philosophers, but on the other, he is able to ground these Christians in the most basic and fundamental exhortation of the Christian life. Believe in Jesus. I would just like to read through the book with you. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, if not, there's some on the table. Um, And I think it's a wonderful thing, we've done this at least one other time, to read through whole books of the Bible um, in the corporate gathering. As Paul said, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. I think we can do more of that. And I would encourage you also, perhaps, to read through the book uh, through the week as well, and even underline some of the main themes as you go along. So I just remind you as we begin to read First John that this is God's holy word given to us that we might know that we have eternal life in the Son. First John, beginning in chapter one, verse one, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son. Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might become that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
But the anointing that you have that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and whatever we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And every, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. (coughs) By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Everyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us. 
by the Spirit whom He has given us. Chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, 
because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.